Hello and welcome to the Recovering from Religion podcast. Our mission here is to offer hope, healing, and support to those struggling with issues of doubt and non-belief. What follows is the audio from selected videos posted on Recovering from Religion's YouTube channel. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. super excited this week because um, we already know Janice. She's amazing. She has been here before. And I was really inspired by the last time she came here. Um, She told us about her amazing experience. Well, I mean, not amazing experience, but her um, amazing recovery experience, let's say, religion. Um, It was really, I don't know. I'm always so humbled when someone tells um, stories like that. And it was definitely no exception. Uh, So Janice, she is a registered professional counselor with a personal history of religious trauma syndrome. syndrome sorry, um, She is passionate about helping others understand their losses and embrace their identity in the secular world. Her own deconversion experience compelled her to develop the online divorcing, divorcing religion workshop, um, a six-week interactive workshop combining written exercises and group work to bring together those from diverse backgrounds who are walking a similar journey. Uh, so welcome, Janice. Thank you so much for being here with us again. It's, it's such a pleasure to have you uh, another week with us. It's so nice to see you again. Amazing. Um, so today I think you're going to talk about um, mind control and how not to fall for it after you have left religion or if you're recovering from religion, um, because it's, it's very easy uh, to fall for these tricks. So how would you start with the topic? I mean, it's a massive topic, so... It, it really is. And actually, the way that I first would start is by telling everyone that I am not an expert in uh, mind control. I want you to read books and watch videos by authors like Dr. Yanya Lalich and Stephen Hassan and Rick Allen Ross. And let's not forget Dr. Daryl Ray. <laughs> um, if you want to learn more about how your brain works and uh, how it is that we do end up falling prey to um, these mind control tactics. My background is uh, as a fundamentalist um, Christian. So that's the kind of the group that I was in and the group think that I fell into. And I recognize that that authoritarian um, black and white type thinking, just because I left my religious group, that didn't mean that I left that type of thinking that was harder for me to shake. And I had to do some research um, to learn about that. And that's why I wrote this particular module. It's the last module of my workshop, um, this one on not letting an old flame burn you twice. Mm -hmm. So how would you define mind control? Because it it can sound a bit like, I don't want to say the word magical, but a bit like pseudoscience kind of thing. But there is a real tactics that uh, cult religions and also other organizations can use to trick you. So how would you define it? Yeah, the um, the way that I think best encapsulate it or, or, or has, it reflects the most on the way that I think about it. I've got it written down here, so I'm just going to read it to you. Uh, when, an, when an ideology or a person fractures you at the level of your own identity, breaching or hijacking your values, beliefs, decisions, relationships, and behaviors to such a degree that a counterfeit identity is created. And that's what I feel like um, happened to me. So I was born, I'm second generation, born into um, religious fundamentalism. So my 
personality never did have an opportunity to develop my likes, dislikes, anything like that, apart from the very um, strong teachings of uh, my church group and my parents. So I feel like that that's kind of where things start. And also, of course, when you're in the group, the group is having you filter all the information that you receive and the way that you perceive everything through the mindset of um, your religious group. So Mm -hmm. it really impacts your ability to think critically. You start Mm -hmm. becoming very defensive. You've got the cognitive dissonance showing up because we want to protect our worldview, especially when our identity is so closely tied in with our belief. Then it gets to the point that if anyone questions our belief, we respond very strongly because we feel that they're attacking our identity because those two are meshed, our beliefs and our identity. So then we have cognitive dissonance coming into play. And so what we'll do to try and relieve that tension. uh, So for cognitive uh, dissonance, it's the mental conflict that occurs when your beliefs or assumptions are challenged by new information. And so you might reject the information outright, or you might twist that information, or you might try and trick yourself somehow into thinking, oh, well, there really is no conflict there. Those are just some of the ways that um, <laughs> that we might try and, and deal with that. And as you probably know, it can be very hard to talk with someone who um, is in the throes of fundamentalism or fanaticism or extreme thinking about any ideology, not just religion. We certainly see this going on, unfortunately, in politics right now around the world and and in your own country. And we see this, um, it's splitting families apart because people are are connecting so closely with their ideology and, and turning it into their identity and it uh, it always causes division it sounds a lot like um you're describing a cult in a sense uh i hear that uh, from the, what you're describing a lot of the folks i've been um listening to and um supporting over the last several years uh many ha- have come backgrounds uh, come from a cult well definitely i'd say um high control groups Different experts have different thoughts on what makes a a cult. So some say that it can't, if it gets too large, it can't be a cult. But I tend to think that, you know, a cult can be as small as a family or can be as large as many millions of people. If it's, if it's a high, a high control group that's trying to control you. I I wanted to make sure that, um, or point your viewers to um, Robert J. Lifton. So he's deceased, but uh, he wrote um, Eight Criteria for Thought Reform. And he did his studying based on, he was a psychiatrist, I believe. He did his uh, studying based on prisoners of war uh, from the Korean War, and they had been just brutally indoctrinated in the prisoner of war camps. And they were, when they came out of those camps, they were not the same people 
as when they went in. Uh, and some of their thinking was very distorted in comparison to what it had been. So um, Dr. Lifton came up with eight criteria for this thought reform. And the first one he talks about is information control or milieu control. So the group, the person in charge, they want to be controlling your environment, what gets in to you. Uh, they also are concerned with mystical manipulation. And this is something that we actually see in churches as far as them trying to make things appear um, quite spontaneous, but they're actually very planned. So if you think back to just about every worship, worship service you ever attended, there's mood lighting, there's the music starts softly and then, you know, it's going to build to a crescendo and then it's going to get back down again to get you into a frame of mind for when the minister gets up to speak. Um, there are other things done to almost um, alter your consciousness, um, say speaking in tongues. That was a very big part of my um, church experience. Other groups uh, may use chanting. Um, the, even in, uh, we know of the, the whirling dervishes in, in Turkey, these, these religious people, and they spin around and around and around. And what it's doing is it's bringing them into another um, state of consciousness. And then you're, you're much more receptive to things at that point. It kind of breaks down um, your boundaries for critical thinking. Um, also, mystical manipulation tends to demonstrate a divine sort of authority, and that puts people off kilter. Mm -hmm. um, another one of the eight criteria for thought reform is the demand for purity. And we are familiar with this when we think about purity culture and how that's affected, unfortunately, so many people within the Christian religion. But also, uh, it's a demand for purity um, in the doctrine. It's very black and white. You must believe this, not that. Can you um, briefly uh, explain the purity culture um, for the uh, listeners sure. who are, may not be familiar with it? Sure. Um, it's the idea that uh, uh, certainly that females, but males also, are to remain absolutely chaste until their their wedding night. So um, you're certainly, I mean, porn is out, masturbation is is out. It's a sin. Um, girls are um, very much controlled in what they're allowed to wear. Um, very modest, surreal modesty type of culture. Um, and I'm familiar with this because I certainly tried to force it onto my daughters when I was homeschooling. So I'm aware of purity culture and it doesn't have, uh, doesn't end well <laughs> in a lot of cases, a lot of shame involved there. Um, confession was another one of Lifton's eight criteria for thought reform. And so I thought that was really interesting because we typically think of confession being involved in a church or a church group, actually, and some churches really demand it. And you have these small groups that you have to be a part of and you're expected to confess. So this has a way of bonding people together. It also creates fear that someone might disclose and that does actually happen. People end up using it uh, as a way of keeping you in line because you don't want all your secrets blurted out. So a cult of confession. I hadn't thought about that, uh, um, the fear of, you know, like, 
I just assume that people went went into these confessionals trusting the priest, but I, I can see that like after a little bit, there may be this concern, oh crap, the secret is out there. Uh, I have to now rely on this person to keep his mouth shut. This yeah, I, I can't speak to how it works in Catholicism because that wasn't part of my background. But in my background, what we had were accountability groups, accountability groups. Oh, wow. So you're getting together with a group of people and maybe you struggle with pornography or maybe it's something else. And you're really um, expected to be forthcoming about how many times per week you you've thought about this. It's it's like there's no privacy. Mm-hmm. You don't have, you can't even be in your own brain by yourself. And that, that does something to you. Yeah. I mean, um, especially if you have this uh, omniscient um, ghost, just kind of seeing every thought that you have, like nothing is private. Absolutely mm-hmm. nothing is private. Um, that, that's, uh, I, I didn't really think of how impactful that was uh, to me uh, when I was going through it, but um uh, I absolutely can see it afterwards uh, that how creepy it is to never have a private moment. Oh, and you know, one thing that I run into a lot with my clients who've come out of um, fundamentalist Christian backgrounds in particular, who who have had this type of experience where they're not allowed to keep anything to themselves. They're supposed to, their parents have to know everything. The pastor has to know everything. These these people and myself included. Then um, sometimes you go on to become someone who overshares. You share too much. You don't. So you're in a completely secular environment. Maybe you're starting a new job or whatever. You meet someone. You're just prone to blurting all sorts of things out because you you haven't um, developed that social you know like the social cues there that kind of let you know you don't have to share everything and not everyone is safe to hear everything that you might want to share. So that's a real learning process as well. <laughs> a lot of people can relate to that. Um, so there's a, he talked about a sacred science too, Lifton did. And that's where he's talking about doctrine being the ultimate truth. Doctrine or the ideology, whatever, whatever group you're in, being the ultimate truth. There's, there's nothing that could be higher than that. And of course, then... The person who's dispensing that truth to you, you're viewing them as God's mouthpiece. Um, it really puts them in an unfair position of power over their group and over the congregation. Uh, Amaya, I'm worried I cut you off. Were you having a thought there? Uh, yeah, no, it's, I mean, I, would, I didn't want to interrupt you, but um, I was wondering how can you like identify when maybe an organization that is not a religion is trying to manipulate you in similar ways of in similar ways of your as your religious group did, but maybe not exact subtle. So I was wondering if you could give us some tips or some sort of like um, red flags to identify if we feel like something is wrong, but we're not fully sure with a new organization sure. maybe trying to control us. Yeah, there there are um, tactics that different high control groups like to use. So in in churches, a really common one is what we call love bombing. And so because you're new there and they're excited to have you there, you're a potential convert, a potential member. 
they will show such an extreme uh, interest in you. They're so excited to be with you and they want your phone number and they want to invite you to this, this meeting and this outing and um, just really uh, kind of an overwhelming interest in you that is strange because these are people who, who don't know you. Um, maybe a lot of intense questions, probing in ways that they don't have the right to ask you that. That's actually none of their damn business, whatever it is. Um, but that can also be um, something that goes on. I really, I like people to trust their gut. I do feel like we can often, um, we can often tell if we walk into a situation, uh, like have your guard up right? You, you want to, you don't want everyone to have such intimate access to you. But the problem is when we've come out of a group like that, we already have that feeling of familiarity in the community and we long for it. And so then we're kind of ripe pickings for another group. Everyone's vulnerable at some time in their life. And, and it can be because they promise that they're going to change the world and you can help them. And that's really exciting. Or it can just be that you're lonely. It can be that you're depressed. Often it's because your, your identity is in flux. Maybe you've left home, left home for the first time. You're off to university without mom and dad, or maybe you've become a widow or you're divorced. You've moved to a new town. These are all things that leave us vulnerable because we don't have a social support network established yet also of course people who've been traumatized um and there can be a real neediness there uh, like they have genuine needs as they're trying to get their feet back on the ground churches are famous for hosting aa meetings right it's a great way to get new converts to hold those meetings in churches yeah and those tactics are also used by also um um, new partners who are emotionally manipulating. So what you said about love bombing, I've seen that so many times um, it, with my friends and obviously with you know, in TV shows and other sort of uh, environments, like it's such a massive thing and it's like something that repeats itself constantly during different, um, like across different organizations and people. So it's definitely something that is very, very effective and very oh, dangerous. Yes. Yes, and also that can include the person or the group not giving you adequate time away from them. They're not giving you time to stop and think through issues. They want you to become to a, come to a meeting every night of the week or this new love interest wants all of your all of your time. And that we need time to process things, to process information. We need sleep. Our body needs rest and a lot of uh, cults also incorporate um, very heavy physical activity, again, to kind of keep you off kilter mentally and exhausted. And then it's harder for you to think critically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so very true. On that note, how can we think critically? How can we um, make sure that we're following through it and not falling for these tactics? I think the best thing that we can do is... Um, be willing to research and explore even when something sounds really good even you've had this itch and it finally feels like that itch is getting scratched um you know that old adage about if it if it feels too good to be true 
it probably is too good to be true. So there are different sites um, on the internet um, that can help people with critical thinking and keep them from falling into mistakes. So um, critical thinking is the objective analysis and evaluation of an issue in order to form a judgment. But when we're in a fundamentalist um, type of group, we can't be objective. Our ability to be objective uh, is already gone. So it makes it almost impossible to think critically. And then, of course, the cognitive dissonance that comes in when someone is trying to point out to us um, that our group maybe isn't the greatest group. Maybe there's a maybe there's a problem here. We do not want to hear it, particularly if we've invested a lot of time and money and energy and resources into this group. And maybe we've even uh, convinced other people to join the group. Maybe our whole family is part of the group. It's hard to think about leaving and it's even harder to leave. It seems like um, from my own experience and um, some of the stories and studies I read that uh, being in, um, like what we talked about at the beginning, being in a church service or religious service is almost designed to hijack our critical thinking or maybe not almost it seems and is designed to hijack our critical thinking skills to sort of it seems to put that 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 part of our brain to sleep and allows others to uh, inject um, uh, their own thoughts and ideas into our head um, and it, it seems like it's the, the use time uh, like every Sunday you, you come here and go through this um, uh, as well as uh, love bombing and, and several other tactics too. Oh yeah. And doing things like um, when we are singing together with other people. So it doesn't just happen at church. It happens at sports games. Hmm. It happens in the military. They have you singing while you're marching. Um, there are different, uh, different events where people will be singing together. It's a very, very bonding activity because singing actually can be quite emotional. And when you're all singing together the same song, it really can be very stirring for us. Um, and I mean, the, the military has known this forever since the military has been around. And certainly churches have had a long, long, long time to perfect this business of getting people to come into the community, commit to the community, and stay in the community. I um, was one of the favorite parts of the, the, the um, church services that I used to attend. The parts where I didn't fall asleep in was the singing. The sermon part, I'm just like, whatever. But the, uh, uh, the parts that I actually uh, loved the most was that singing. Like it, the, the sound would kind of just reverberate through all of my cavities and it just would have this euphoric feeling. And I loved, I loved coming back every Sunday to um, get that feeling again, something I couldn't do on my own necessarily, but it took this whole group uh, to provide this really unique feeling. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would say without a doubt, that's what I, uh, that's what I miss the most as well is singing with other people. And of course, along with that. Um, so you're, you're not just singing about nature you're singing about God, about this creator or this group. You're singing about something that's much bigger than yourself. So there's kind of an like an ephemeral quality to it. And, and that also ties in with feeling special 
And that's one reason that people join groups and stay in groups is that they feel special being a, you know, being part of that community. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So because we have been sort of uh, trained and molded to uh, put that critical thinking side of our brain to sleep, do you have any, any idea or any thoughts on how we could sort of start to wake it up? I think you had mentioned some websites uh, that, that are out there to help us. Yes, and I'll be happy to, um, to pass those uh, along to you, actually, so that you can pass them on to your viewers. Because certainly, critical thinking is not a skill that I was raised uh, having. And I don't believe it's really taught in our schools um, these days either. So it's something that we want to develop for ourselves and also for um, our children. And it's something that when we're having dinner with our kids, if they're telling us something about a program they watched or something that they learned, um, really to ask them about it. And sometimes um, sometimes even asking about it from, from another point of view, just to get them thinking about it. Because everything's presented to us in one way. We have one view when someone's presenting something to us. So what we want to be able to do is um, move around and see other potential viewpoints for whatever the information is. And, and to be able to research it and verify it. One of the things that really helped me train myself to do that was the Skeptic's Guide and is still the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast. They are um, just fantastic at it and continue to challenge me and encourage me to um, flex that uh, that uh, critical thinking and skeptical muscle in my own brain. Awesome, that's awesome. Yeah, was, and that's sorry. No, it, it was key to um, knocking down one thing after another, one one magical bit of thinking after another, um, until I had uh, this existential crisis. When you know, but it, without that podcast. Um, I don't know how else I would have gotten that education or, or those, those skills. It's- mm-hmm. Yeah. What we, what we need to be able to do is um, separate our belief from our devotion to the belief. When we're holding a belief very tightly, um, there's no room in there for, for exploration. So mm-hmm. we need to be able to get a little bit of space there in between us and our and the devotion um, to the belief. Um, and then there are questions uh, that we can ask ourselves about whatever belief we're holding. Uh, so we want to figure out what do I actually believe about X, say whatever X is, who introduced me to X, who introduced me to this philosophy? What was their relationship to me? Because if it was a parent or a caregiver and I was a child, I, I did not truly have a choice. Uh, I just would absorb the information. I want to please my caregiver, my teacher, whoever it is. So what was their relationship to me? How old was I? Uh, and, of course, we do want to determine, is X true? Is it verifiable? So and And when we find ourselves really attached very firmly, like strongly, passionately defending um, an ideology or a belief, it's time to examine our attachment to that belief. Because it might mean then that it's 
it's something that is meshing um, with our own identity, identity, or we're having enmeshment with that belief. And then it's going to be really hard for us to think critically. Because again, we feel like we're being attacked, rather than the, that the belief is just being questioned. So and that, that can happen in any sphere, any belief that we have. So we want to be aware of that. I see that a lot too when um, uh, certain religions are challenged and they uh, um, uh, folks react in a very hostile way oftentimes. And it seems like it's way of, uh, excessive to what the, um, the, the initial attack was. Um, and uh, I think that that's kind of, an indication of uh, you're you're challenging my deeply held belief. Um, I don't want to think of it another way. Um, so let me uh, let me bite you so you don't come back and do it again. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I think it, it, the same thing kind of goes along the lines with um, the blasphemy laws that are all across the world in, in several different countries too. Um, the whole concept of blasphemy. I think ideas should be challenged and dumb ideas should be made fun of. Um, and nothing is really off limits uh, uh, within for adults uh, to to be challenged and discussed. And so I'm not a fan of blasphemy at all. Of course. <laughs> well, it's that mind shift um, is is a shock to people, to those of us who were raised in fundamentalist um, groups and homes, and we were. It was demanded of us that we be. Um, ready and willing and able to give a defense for our beliefs. So mm. we had to know, uh, we really had to know, okay, well, the, the Bible says this and my pastor says this. So we're not necessarily thinking about what we think about it. We just know what's been told to us, what we're supposed to think about it. So then to wrap your mind around being able to question, being able to question your own beliefs being able to question the beliefs of other groups and and uh, religions. I mean, religion is certainly a sacred cow, and I mean, I think it needs to be slaughtered. And that's not a real popular <laughs> opinion in a lot of places today. Uh, can you talk a bit about how fanatism is related to fundamentalism and mind control? Because I'm sure, fan I, um, I think... Fanatism is often used to recruit more younger people, maybe. Uh, so yeah. I feel like it can be more dangerous and more like preying on the most vulnerable people again. So Right. Yeah, great question. So fundamentalism and uh, fanaticism, they're not identical, but they are very closely related. With fundamentalism, um, appealing a lot to folks who are seeking security. So they're kind of they're looking backwards wistfully, hearkening to some whatever idealized version of the past that they'd like to see restored, uh, makes them feel kind of safe. Um, but fanaticism does appeal more to youth because they're seeking drama and action. But both of those groups, when they get in their echo chambers, uh, just hearing the same, the same things from their people, um, it makes them avoid critical thinking and and what actually relates them because you know you can have a you can have a Saul to Paul experience but you can also have a Paul to Saul experience so people can fundamentalists they can't be convinced but they can be converted 
they can be converted over often to an equally extreme opposing view because what what relates them is their uh, their passion, their passion for it. They have to be passionate about something because they're often uncertain of their own identity. And that's when we're having that identity crisis. We, we gain confidence by believing in something that seems sacred to us. Any cause can become a holy cause. And anybody can become a defender of a holy cause. But the danger then is that we stop seeing the humanity of people who don't believe that. And we, start, we can start finding cruelty as acceptable for people who don't hold the line, who don't hold that view. I'm not, I went on a little bit of a rabbit trail there, but hopefully that answered some of your <laughs> question. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I, I mean, antagonizing the, the others or the external group is, is, I think, one of the most like, dangerous parts of it because it can, A, isolate you from your friends and family and B, make you more radical and... Yeah, less accepting of other ideas. So, so right. yeah, you answered that perfectly. Yeah, and and cues that we are maybe um, holding too tightly to an ideology or a belief is if we're using the words the words should and must and have to, because those words let us know that somebody has created rules for us along the way, and that if we don't follow those rules, um, potentially there's um, judgment and punishment, mm -hmm. and um, then we run into issues with love. Love becomes conditional when we are deeply attached to a belief. Mm -hmm. Our love for others can become conditional, and even our love for ourselves can depend on whether or not we are adhering to that belief. And this is, so even if we're able to divorce religion, um, the space where self-acceptance should be has been hijacked by self-judgment. And because we are now apostate, we may subconsciously think that we are not even worthy of being loved. So that's a point where you may need to consult with a professional therapist to help as you're, as you're rebuilding yourself. Yeah, yeah, no, that, makes, that makes absolutely perfect sense, yeah. Um, so how can you identify someone who is a religious fanatic or not, I mean, I say religious, it can be an MLM, as we mentioned in the poll, fanatic or something like this, yeah. Yeah, well, again, I would say um, use of the words should and, uh, and must and have to, um, that can help us see that someone has an overly strong attachment um, to an idea. If they're unable to talk about anything else, if it doesn't matter what you're talking with them about, but they have to bring in that topic or that group, yeah, that's not, that's not just a piece of their pie anymore. It's taken over the whole pie. Like it's becoming the whole thing. So, and I mean, we all like pie, but geez, I'll just have a piece of it, please. So yeah, those are things to, to look for. And again, you're, if you start feeling uh, prickly about it, like if, you know, how come every time I see this person, they just want to talk about this thing over and over again, well, that's go with your gut on that. You can tell something is something is not right there. Yeah. So follow your mistakes, kind of kind of thing. Yeah, that makes sense. And this um, um, this conversation is um, centering around uh, religion specifically, but it doesn't necessarily just 
reside in the spectrum of religion. I mean, this seems to be more of a human, uh, uh, we can attach ourselves to almost any cause, whether it's religious or not. I mean, from what you're saying, it sounds a lot like um, many so- both sides of our current political situation here in the United States, both um, some uh, far extreme uh, Democrats and some very far extreme uh, uh, Republicans uh, as well. Is, is, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, I think so, because it's, <clears throat> pardon me, definitely when we, when we get to a point where we're categorizing strongly between us and them, and we're really, um, it's not just an ideology that we're holding. It's we become that. I don't just believe this thing. I am this thing. Mm-hmm. And that's when um, real division starts to starts to occur. Mm-hmm. So then how can you tell between something that um, that is part of your identity, like I am a woman, I am a humanist, I am a secular person? from like differentiating that from what you said of, I am not these things, these things are just, I don't know, I guess part of, I'm not sure if I'm making sense, but um, because someone could say like, well then being a a humanist then is fanatism because it is, you are a humanist, is part of your identity. Does does that make sense? Right, and pardon me. So being a a humanist, uh, to me, that, I'm, I'm looking for the, I'm hoping for the betterment of all humans. It's not just, um, you know, if your group, it's actually, it's the um, dispensing of existence, going back to Lipton that I was talking about at the beginning, all outside group members are unsaved or they're damned. If you find yourself falling into that way of thinking, you really need to examine it. You really need to examine it because that's just um, that's just much too strong. And I I confess that in things are so highly charged politically right now. You know, it's hard for me sometimes not to roll my eyes when <laughs> when someone's talking <laughs> and they and they seem so so far off. Um, but I really would prefer to see and think about what we have in common rather than only fixating on. Um, what is so different about us because what we all have in common is that we are human we're all worthy of dignity and love and respect but i want people to know that they're wrong (laughs) 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 so you know it's important to for me to keep these uh uh, to keep them in their place, like, or let them know that they're wrong. But uh, that, well, perhaps we could work. instead work, though. We could present wow. it as um, my. Uh, have you ever considered it this way? Or you know, you're couching it in. That's a really interesting idea. I've never thought about that before. <laughs> have you ever thought about it like this? And when we approach the topic like that, it's not so off-putting because of course anyone who feels that they are being criticized they're not going to be listening very well or very deeply so we want to try and keep avenues of communication open what can someone do if they want to become a fanatic what are some (laughs) of the like what can someone do just to kind of like paint this well, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, <laughs> yes, I did write out for my workshop uh, how to become a fanatic in five easy steps. 
And I'm going to tell you that right now. To start off, step five one. Five easy steps. Five, five easy steps. Five How now. many payments is that? That's right. <laughs> it's a good payment plan. First of all, you're just curious about spirituality. So you're going to investigate. Step two, become captivated by a fundamentalist or rigid ideology. Step three, openly declare it as your chosen belief and label yourself accordingly. Make it your community, but, but still be comfortable with outsiders. Now at step four, your fundamentalist beliefs and your identity are fusing. They're fusing together. Your beliefs are defining you and taking over your life. Your self-love has become conditional upon your belief. And now step five for becoming a fanatic, believe your ideology without question. Devalue non-believers, cut off relations with outsiders, be willing to face prison or death for your religious belief. Your identity has fused fully with your belief, making your support of the ideology more important than what it actually stands for. At step one, you can attend any festival or mosque or temple and experience love and joy. By step five, the religion itself has become more important than the God it promotes. So that's your five steps to becoming a fanatic. Well, that sounds easy enough. <laughs> <laughs> it was for me. I can tell you that. I wasn't even aware that it was going on because I was so steeped in it. Having been raised in it, it never really crossed my mind um, to question it. My parents believed it. My friends believed it. The people that I respected uh, believed it. I didn't think that I was a fanatic. Uh, geez, now I'm on the other side. Boy, yeah, I have a very, very different view of it. And it's all about the, the levels of attachment, how strongly attached we are to an ideology. Yeah, um, I was talking about this uh, at a uh, support group meeting the uh, just last week, too. Um, I've been a non-believer for 10 years now and, um, you know, kind of just went through the whole process of rediscovering myself and rebuilding my worldview. Um, and I couldn't really see into the in, in my past as... Uh, objectively as I thought I could have at that time. But the further and further I, I um, get away from that initial rebuilding process, the more and more I can see how fanatical I was um, uh, in the past as a, as a young child and, and um, a, a teenager as well. So um, the whole uh, my whole view of uh, my own upbringing and uh, uh, my own, the way I behaved and thought um, has uh, completely changed over the last few years as I, as I reexamine it. And yeah, it was a surprising to me. Like when I saw it, I just, <laughs> I was shocked and had to kind of sit back for a little bit and really think, is this, is this true? Am I just wanting to pity myself or, but no, it it's, it was crazy just to see how fanatical I was back then. Well, and there's nothing like believing that people are actually going to roast in an eternal hell forever and be tortured and tormented. Boy, that, that gives you like a pretty strong impetus to actually be get out, get out and trying to proselytize people when you truly um, believe that. But, you know, I haven't really found anything else um, 
besides that, that's been that's been quite so motivating. So, yeah, I understand it. And you know, people when they when they get to the point that they recognize they've swallowed the Kool Aid or um, they have been duped, they have spent much of their life in a belief system where they've spent thousands of dollars, as in the case of multi-level marketing, or maybe they went to Bible college, there's an anger that comes after that. And people who've left are very familiar with this anger. So it's normal to feel angry, but if we stay angry, we're still allowing that group or person or ideology to have a large measure of control and power over us. So I want people to be able to identify that anger, recognize, recognize why they're angry and then do their best to be just moving on in life. Yeah, I was, I can totally identify with that anger. I was very angry when I came out of it. And, but, and it was, I, when I identified what the source was, it was because I felt lied to. I felt mm-hmm. betrayed. But I couldn't blame anybody. I couldn't blame my parents because they were just doing what they were taught. I, mm-hmm. uh, I couldn't really even blame my pastors. But it, it was just syst- the system. The, and I, I can't waggle my finger at the system or, or yell at the system or anything like that. But what was kind of uh, neat is that once I got over that a specific anger um, for being lied to or betrayed. Um, I was I, I I got past that, and the anger was still there, but it was no longer towards uh, my own past. It was more towards the present of what religions are trying to do uh, now, both to say relevant and to weasel their way into my own life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, it, it became. I feel. Um, slightly more healthy anger than uh, than, than it was before. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I if I'm thinking of it in terms of a picture, it's like I have these huge rocks tied around me that are really uh, holding me down, and the rocks are my my anger about uh, what has happened or what's been done to me. I want to be able to untie those from me as as fast as I can, as soon as I can, because I want to be able to like run forward into my new life, the life that will be the life that I choose, the life that I make for myself. And I want to be unencumbered by that anger. So you had, uh, um, backing up slightly, you had talked about multi-level marketing. How, like, uh, I was a part of, (laughs) I'm so embarrassed to say this, but I was a part of a few multi-level marketing. Um, uh, I was an entrepreneur. Oh, Amaya, don't give me that face. (laughs) You know, I mean, I'm, I'm not judging you. It's just that I didn't expect it because it, they typically um, approach women. So, like, I was not expecting you to be to be um, like part of one of them. But I mean, of course, anyone can fall in their in their manipulation tactics. It's like there's no there's no shame in that at all. Yeah, I was uh, primed for it. Um, I, I, I uh, am an entrepreneur. I started several businesses and I thought like, hey, I got this, um, knowing full well that the math doesn't work out. But I I saw that that um, fanatical type of behavior and, and I felt uh, so like the stadiums that they would fill with this, uh, like the conferences we'd go to and the stadiums they'd fill, um, I felt so uncomfortable in there because very uh, so many of the tactics they used 
in the multi-level marketing was what I experienced in church too. It was incredibly similar. Um, And I felt uncomfortable. I'm like, I don't want to, I've been down that road before. I've been hurt by this same sort of um, uh, treatment or, or um, method before I can recognize this and I don't want to be a part of it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're right on the, right on the money there um, because MLMs uh, essentially function much the same way that cults do. They're usually in a pyramid shape with um, someone at the top who's, you know, making all the rules and all the decisions and also getting all the glory and all the money. And then everybody's encouraged to be proselytizing or bringing in new people to be growing your upline or downline or whatever it is um and then the there's a sense of community and it's very raw 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 it's it is high high pressure and you're expected to be bringing up these mlms multi-level marketing groups in every conversation that you have are you in the grocery store talking to the cashier well you can tell her how she can better her life by using this product and selling this product and and mlms are hugely popular in churches. They burn through churches. um, And it's actually quite unfortunate because they also destroy um, relationships. But the way that they um, attract a lot of religious people is by promising that if you are successful enough, which of course you will be selling our fantastic product, you won't have to work anymore. You won't have to do any more work. You can do full-time ministry. And who, I mean, are you not holy enough? Why would you not want to do full-time ministry? So that's how, uh, and a lot of young people, unfortunately, get sucked into MLMs because they never heard of them before. They don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I was one of those dicks that would uh, message folks on Facebook, like, hey, how you doing? Like, oh, I'm doing great. Thanks for reaching out to me. Yeah, uh, you need any uh, XYZ? Like, I got him. (laughs) Come to me. You want to make some money? (laughs) Well, thankfully, thankfully, I was in MLMs before there was Facebook or even before there was internet because I'm that old. But we did, I mean, Amway, Jewelway, Bytron, Juice Plus. And we never got rich from any of them, but we kept trying. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know how many people unfriended me because I did that, but they were <laughs> absolutely in the right to do so. <laughs> so um, what's next? What do you want to talk about next uh, about the um, about this? Um, well, I wonder uh, if people are wondering if they're still displaying fundamentalist or rigid thinking. This might be something good to talk about. Um okay. Are you still categorizing between us and them in any part of your life? Are you characterizing others as being all the same and only characterizing them by their negative traits? Oh, like a stereotyping a group of people, Mm -hmm. whether it's uh, by um, political affiliation, religious affiliation, even um, non-believers can fall into this trap, it seems. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, by saying they're they're all the same, they're all alike. Um, are you avoiding or rejecting information from those that you disagree with, mm, or if you think that their information might possibly uh, poke a little hole in the armor that you have on? And I got to tell you this funny story. So when I was still married and we were living on the college Bible college campus, a very conservative school, and I. Uh, heard an article or read an article about this thing called a God helmet. And people would 
put it on and it stimulated different parts of the brain and and it could make made some people have some kind of spiritual experience like they felt that god was in the room and i and i read it to my husband i was just horrified i said what what do you think of that he said i think we're gonna get rid of that magazine and never talk about that again So that goes along with what I just said, if you're avoiding and rejecting information from those you disagree with. Um, and so you- what, what if, uh, what if um, the information that is coming, they, they say that they're fair and balanced. I mean, how do you, how do you deal with that? <laughs> I'm well, kidding. That was a reference to Fox News. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, see, I don't watch Fox News. I'm Canadian. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, do your research. For sure. Um, Are you failing to consider points of view that are different than your own? Are you disapproving and disassociating uh, with those outside your beliefs? I sometimes I confess I go through my Twitter feed and boy, I just have a lot of people who are pretty down on religion and a lot of hardcore um, Democrats in there. I don't have too many other. too many other voices but I mean you're allowed to choose who you want to have but I think it is very important like you just brought up Fox News not a bad idea every once in a while to tune in and see what they're saying oh, I know I know you feel like you gotta have a shower after. that's um, like putting on underwear after I just had diarrhea or something it just doesn't doesn't sound uh, appealing at all to me but uh that's just personal, uh, me personally talking. <laughs> so for, for those who may be eating dinner right now, we Oh, here's a good one. Do you see non-believers and dissenters as the problem? Do you see them as the problem? Uh, do you believe that only your group knows the truth? And do you behave self-righteously? as a result. And for that one, you might have to ask an outsider for their opinion. But those are things just to keep in mind, even though we've left religion, um, that's a way for us to know if we're still displaying rigid thinking or fundamentalist thinking. It sounds like each one of these points are kind of on a spectrum too. It's, uh, um, I can see some things that I'm um, very black and white about or very adamant about, but also uh, some things I still can examine that uh, I may be slightly gray on. Um, and um, there there also seems like there's some things I can, I've already worked on, but there's a lot of others that uh, I, I still need to work on too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like to ask people, um, do you hold your beliefs or do, or do they hold you? That's oh my gosh, that is mm-hmm. a hell of a quote. <laughs> Can you say say that again for the folks in the back? (laughs) Do you hold your beliefs or do they hold you? Oh, I'd love it. Oh, right on. Okay. I'm glad I, I'm glad I showed up today. (laughs) (laughs) Good night folks. Well, this was fun. We can just end right here and be good. (laughs) So what else do you have that uh, we can talk about? I've got all my notes here, which is why I'm looking all around here to see. Um, Oh, did you know that, Some people believe, and I may be one, that religion can be an addiction. So there are process addictions, as there, so there's substance addictions. You can, you know what that is. But a process addiction might be like gambling, shopping, sex, or religion, because it's it's something uh, that you do. 
You know, I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way. I have thought of it as a habit, like, but I never necessarily thought of it as an addiction. Like, I guess habits are maybe more behaviors that I uh, had, um, but I can see see it as a as an addiction. Uh, okay, right. Um, uh, okay, here's what I was looking at. Mental health professionals maybe have a well, they do have a series of questions they will ask to see if you are addicted. To something um, so it's if we modify it we can ask them about religion do you use religion to avoid responsibilities and I know some <laughs> people do I think particularly of people who um, if they if their group tells them the end is nigh they're they're not going to do anything they're not going to go to college they're not going to be saving for the future um, are you smirking mr. Wells Yes, I'm totally smirking because I'm thinking um, if there is someone who knows everything, like some spiritual being that knows everything and has a plan, uh, um, then uh, I don't have to be responsible for for things. Uh, It's all in in that person's hands. Uh, I've abdicated for a long time that um, being religious sort of allows folks to give up the responsibility of yeah. Uh, absolutely. absolutely. So that's what I was smirking about. I'm just thinking to myself, man, that just hits the nail on the head right there. <laughs> um, does preoccupation with religion cause you to neglect your job or your relationships? Because, I mean, you really, you should be witnessing to people rather than just working at your sales job or whatever. Or instead of having a date with your your partner, you better go out street witnessing. Oh, my God, I've had to do that before. You know, um, I've talked to some folks who uh, um, needed to or had to intern at their church um, yeah. or, uh, or some Jehovah's Witnesses who have to... Um, uh, participate in, oh shoot, I forgot what it's called, but they're very specific thing where they need to go out. um, uh, The door knocking? uh, The door knocking, yeah, uh, but work in, work for the church um, or maybe go on missions uh, or something like that too. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Does religion prevent you from outside friendships or activities? I think for a lot of people it does. Has anyone ever told you that your religious devotion is extreme? And if they have, you've probably taken it as like a compliment. Um, Do you get defensive when questioned about your religion? So that, I mean, certainly if I was drinking a lot and someone was questioning me about my drinking, I would feel defensive about it. And, you know, maybe if I'm going to church five nights a week and a non-religious friend questions me about it, I might feel... Uh, defensive about it. Do you give more time or money to your religion than you can afford? Mm. And I know people who definitely do that. You know, there is one parable that in the Bible that started to bug me when I came out. And I think it was related to this. There's a parable where there's a a wealthy man comes into this, this temple um, drops, you know, I don't know, a couple hundred, it wasn't bucks back then, but a couple hundred bucks. Uh, And then there was this poor woman who, puts in like two pennies uh, or, or, you know, maybe a dollar into the offering thing. And I think Jesus said like that woman um, gave uh, is, is so much better than the rich man because she gave all that she had. And I don't see that as a very good lesson to teach other folks. Like 
you've you've got there there isn't a sky daddy that's going to take care of you you've got to take care of yourself and if you're giving everything to uh, the religion they're just it's just is going to tie you in and uh, lock you into that and you'll have to become dependent on it um and so um i hate that parable it's it's just an awful lesson in 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 my opinion yeah, it's a lesson on fanaticism, actually. Yeah, giving <laughs> you give you give every single thing you have, so you have nothing left. That doesn't sound too wise. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I did just want to backtrack there um, when I was talking about process um, uh, addictions. I don't want to include um, sex in there because I don't believe that as as an addiction. But gambling, I would say, definitely could be, and there are other things too. Um, yeah, so let's. That's just about it for me. I do. I have some quotes that I thought your viewers might enjoy. But you had the best quote already. Can it possibly get any better? <laughs> I know, and that quotes, was quotes mine. last time that you met with us, and and they were fantastic. They were just great quotes. So hit us. What have you got? All right. Uh, this one's by Aldous Huxley. Oh. One believes things because one has been conditioned to believe them. I feel that is true. And then one by one of your former presidents, um, JFK. Conformity is the jailer of freedom and the enemy of growth. And I love that one because my whole life was about conformity. Not Can you repeat again, sir? Sure. Conformity is, Sorry, conformity is the jailer of freedom and the enemy of growth. And that's by JFK. You said um, one of our presidents because you are in Canada. You're in. Yep, I'm Canadian. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're our cool like uh, neighbors uh, upstairs. Well, thank you. <laughs> We're trying to keep our cool, but you guys are making us nervous. <laughs> oh, here's another good one uh, by a person named Evita Ochel, and she said, "Until you realize how." easily it is for your mind to be manipulated you remain the puppet of someone else's game mm. so it's important for us to realize all of us every single one of us we can be manipulated because we are all vulnerable at some time so please don't look at others um, with judgment if you see either that they are in a high control group or they've come out of a high control group they don't need your judgment. They need your compassion. Awesome. Janice, thank you so much for sitting down and talking to us. This was, this was great. Um, I think um, I'm lucky because I feel like I've got a little bit of therapy out of this too, just being able to <laughs> examine some of my own um, behaviors and my own thoughts and, and to become better uh, because of it. So thank you. Thank you so much for sitting down with us again. It's been a real pleasure. Thank <laughs> you. Um, we have got some uh, questions for you, um, but uh, and we also have some resources uh, uh, to provide for folks as well. They'll be in the chat in a moment, and uh, we'll also have them in the uh, video description. But um, you know, just like last time, Janice, we have a hangout afterwards. Would uh, you mind sticking around for a couple of minutes to uh, talk with some folks? I would love to stick around, but I have to turn off this light that's shining on me because I'm about to fade. It's so <laughs> hot in here. Oh, baby Jesus in a race car. It is hot, hot, hot in Canada today. <laughs> baby Jesus in a race car. <laughs> hey, 
heard that one. <laughs> I, know, I know what his car number is. It's it's six 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 on his car number, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm melting here. <sighs> All right. Um, well, um, yeah. Feel free to turn the light off. But we've got some questions for you. All right. Um, uh, Maya, would you like to start us off? Yeah, if I don't uh, keep cutting, cutting off, yeah, sure. <laughs> so the first one is, what is wrong with accountability groups? Being a newish vegetarian, I found accountability within a vegetarian group to be very helpful. Right. Um, so I have no problem with, uh, with vegetarians or, or even with the vegans. I have some very good friends that fall into those categories. Um, I think we need to be careful that our self-acceptance does not become uh, contingent upon how rigidly we follow any set of rules, whether it's uh, what we eat or what we wear or what we believe. I mean, if, if you have some ice cream and you enjoy the ice cream, even though you're usually a vegetarian and it's not usually uh, on your diet, and then you can be like, okay, that's all right. I had some ice cream and then go back and do do your day. But if you're, if you have that ice cream and then you're just, it's eating you up inside, you're just racked with guilt because you did this thing. And it's really affecting your ability to love yourself. I just, I want people to be careful and be mindful of those things. And also with accountability groups, um, there can be a real tendency to overshare. There can be invasions of privacy. So keep that in mind too. You don't, you can share what you want to share. You don't have to share one more thing. Um, so the last question is, can you repeat the second step to become a religious fanatic? Oh, sure. Um, the second step was to become captivated by a fundamentalist ideology. So at first you're just open and investigating, uh, but then you're actually really zeroing in on an ideology. Mm-hmm. Can we just have a quick recap of like all of the steps? Yes. Sure. That was uh, step one, be curious. Step two, become captivated. Step three, openly declare it as your chosen belief and label yourself accordingly. Not just, I think this, I am this. Um, and then, uh, but still at step three, you can be comfortable with others who don't hold that belief. But in step four, um, your belief and your identity are becoming fused together. Your belief defines you and is taking over your life. And your self-love has become conditional on your belief. And then the fifth step uh, is to believe your ideology without question. Devalue non-believers. Cut off relations with outsiders. Be willing to face prison or death for your belief. Mm. Your identity has fused fully with your belief, making your support of the ideology more important than what it actually stands for. Thank you. Thank you so much, Janice. Um, well, we, uh, you feel free to uh, turn on the fan and turn off the light and cool down some because uh, we're going to talk about next week's RFRX and we'll also hear from our executive director uh, as a kind of a closing message. So you've got some time to cool down. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> You're very welcome. Yeah, thanks again. 
Uh, all right, ladies and gentlemen. So this that's going to conclude our RFRX for today. We want to talk about next week's RFRX. Uh, we say this every time, and it's true every time, as you can see, because uh, you guys keep coming back. Um, it's going to be a great one. Uh, so we have this idea, and we kind of are going to be starting it up next week. It'll be the first of uh, the series. And this is uh, the series is going to be a religion-specific series. We're going to be bringing on some experts. They're going to talk about um, their own stories inside of their particular religion. They're also going to discuss some of the challenges that they faced or certain groups of people face within their religion. We're going to talk about some of the challenges um, people face coming out, some of the unique challenges they face coming out of the religion. And we're also going to talk about like what sets this specific religion apart from the others. We're kind of seeing this as a resource for folks who have friends or family that are in this in a specific religion, be it Jehovah's Witness or Mormonism or Roman Catholicism or what have you. We're kind of seeing this as a resource for folks to um, use and, and look to um, for people they care about or even folks who are coming out of it to kind of perhaps see what's coming down the line and, and what to expect. Um, so that's kind of the idea that we've got. And, and our first one will be starting next Monday. And uh, it will feature Lloyd Evans and Sherry D'Souza. And we're going to talk about the Jehovah's Witness uh, religion. Well, so I'm actually um, kind of excited about this to see how it goes and uh, to see kind of if it's um, uh, helpful for others in the future. We have a couple more of these planned uh, down the line. I'm not going to tell you which ones they are yet. Uh, you'll just have to keep tuning in, but uh, we've got a couple more, and I think they're going to be good. Um, you want to tell us, Amaya, about uh, uh, the, the uh, previous RFRX recordings and such? Uh, yeah, sure. So as we have said before, um, if you want to rewatch any of our previous RFRX <clears throat> excuse me, sessions, all you have to do is go to our YouTube channel, which um, if you give me a sec, I will link it in the chat. I'll take care and, of it. All right, perfect. And if you want to send us any questions, any feedback, anything that you feel like um, we should talk about more, anything that you think we should change, uh, just let us know in our email address. That is rfrx at um, recoveringfromreligion.org. Recovering from Religion is a nonprofit organization whose mission it is to provide hope, healing, and support to those struggling with issues of doubt and non-belief. Hope, healing, and support is waiting for you on our website, recoveringfromreligion.org. There you can speak or chat with a trained agent who will work with you through your struggles and doubts or to help find resources that may work for you. You can also find local Recovering from Religion support groups in your area for the long-term recovery work. Resources specifically curated for those struggling with doubts, disbelief, and trauma can also be found on the RFR website. To connect with a secular therapist in your area, go to seculartherapy.org and create an account. If you'd like to support the work that RFR does, you can donate or sign up as a volunteer on the Recovering from Religion website. It's also a big help subscribing to the RFR YouTube channel, our blog, or following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Questions, comments, and suggestions can be emailed to us at rfrx at recoveringfromreligion.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll be with us next time on the Recovering From Religion podcast.